0: Tim, thanks for coming on the show, mate, and uh, taking some time out of your busier schedule for me. No worries, thanks for having me. For our listeners, can you just give a bit of a background on yourself before we get started? So, I'm a sports physio by background. Uh, graduated
1: in Australia, uh, 2002. Uh, was pretty lucky. I got involved in, in professional sport reasonably early. Uh, so, my first year was I was only two years out. Um, and back then football programs were pretty small like they really only carried sort of one physio as where well. these days there's sort of you know big big um uh, big groups of teams so to get a get a gig pretty early uh it was like 2004 was I was, I was pretty lucky with that so I I I worked uh pretty much non-stop in professional sport till sort of end of 20, 2017 um and worked across uh most of the football codes so um uh, rugby league, rugby union, um, AFL uh, in Australia, rug- rugby sevens, um, and worked in the UK uh, as well. I started a um, a PhD in 2012, uh, which was kind of looking at return to sport um, after after an ACL, and I, I finished that in 2016. Um, and then kind of off the back of that um, formalised uh, program, which we call. Uh, pitch ready which is sort of trying to pull all that into kind of pre-injury um uh injury reduction sort of strategies uh and return to sport testing afterwards so so pretty much that between that and um we've got a private practice here in in canberra in australia um, called elite rehab that's basically how i how i fill my time now yeah
0: a lot of experience in a large variety of, of sports and areas there mate and i remember um specifically about the research before we spoke today that a phd wouldn't have been on your radar a while ago right
1: i, I yeah I, I i would be when i finished my undergraduate degree i was i was carrying on because i you know that was going to be the last bit of study that i was ever i was ever going to do i was fully convinced of that and, and i got mildly bored um after you know a couple of years out and decided to do a like a you know, sports sports masters um, and but I would be literally the last person that you would sort of pick to do a to do a sort of higher degree research. Um, uh, and literally just kind of fell into it. It um, had an orthopedic surgeon one day uh, just ask me, you know, for some rehab protocols because he wanted to sort of pass it out to physios. Just sort of lacked a bit of structure in terms of how things were were kind of derived. And um, I didn't really feel comfortable doing that unless I had some kind of you know validation behind what I was kind of pushing across and it, it grew from this really small sort of thing where you realize okay well to do that you, you know you need some rigor around equipment and you know the only place that had a lot of those bits of equipment was the university and the only way university was going to do that is if you did it as a higher degree research so I just went from this tiny little corridor conversation into kind of a full-blown sort of four and a bit year project.
0: Yeah I think for me that's one of the most exciting things about our career path is that there's so many avenues you could explore but just while we're on it what are your reflections on doing a phd for those thinking about doing one now
1: i think if you pick the right topic it can be one of the best experiences of your career like like i really enjoyed mine you know I hated my undergrad physio degree because there were plenty of parts of it that i just had no no interest in masters was a bit better because it was sort of more aligned with the field that i wanted to but that you know the phd you obviously um You set the pace and you set the agenda so I I think if you do it for the right reasons like I said I didn't didn't want a piece of paper I didn't want to be a lecturer at a university so mine was purely born out of wanting to kind of get more get more knowledge and if you do it for that reason I think it can be really like yeah really really enjoyable
0: yeah I'm doing my sports masters at the moment and I definitely enjoy it more than my undergrad and I'm sure I'll do a PhD at some point um, but it still remains quite elusive to me so it's it's interesting to hear your insights about what a phd involves and in, in your story and your journey into studying it
1: and it's and it's really like a phd when you start it you think that you're going to have all the answers by the end of it but really all it does is just teach you that you really don't really know anything um and uh and really it's all the things that come after the phd that, which i think are the most rewarding clinic like it really just teaches you the process of understanding research and um, all the little bits and pieces that kind of, kind of go into it. So it's, it's really a, an education in itself. It just, it gives you the, gives you the background as to, you know, the state of play within that particular field that you're going to, that you're going to attack. And, and really it's, it's everything that comes after that is, you know, is really quite enjoyable because you've, you've you're sort of diving right into an area that you, you have an interest in.
0: No, that that's great insight that I'm sure a lot of our listeners thinking of or in the process of doing a PhD will find valuable or relate to, um, certainly around uh, the ability to critique research. And one of the benefits I found from doing this podcast and chatting to professors, uh, postdocs, PhD students is they all have that ability to critique research um, to inform their practice, which I think as reflected in what you're saying is is where the benefit comes from. Uh, but that leads us nicely on to, to the topic of today's episode, where we're going to discuss one of your first publications in your PhD. Sure. Um, and the paper was published in 2016 in the Orthopaedic Journal of Sports Medicine, and it's titled An Ecological Study of Anterior Cruciate Ligament Reconstructions, Part 1. Uh, clinical tests do not correlate with return to sports outcomes. And you've already alluded in your corridor conversation about how this uh, article came into existence and um, but can you give us a bit more about the background of the study
1: again yeah the the whole purpose of this was about trying to create some rigor around you know um, when someone is kind of ready to go back to sport and and at that time um, even what we think to be pretty low level or simple things in terms of like measurements of leg capacity, you know, it wasn't really a done thing at that time. It was um, really time-based. time, time based. Like most of the research at that point, they, there was a big meta-analysis that was done and um, something like 95% of the studies that even looked at return to sport after ACL had no real objective criteria other than just time. So when they reached a certain biological milestone is when they kind of went back to sport. So um, really the, the whole project was about, you know, trying to just dive into uh, different aspects of recovery and then, you know, what are the things that are useful? And, you know, and, and even within some of these things like the paper we're talking about now with clinical tests is um, everything has its place and it's probably just knowing when something has its, you know, has, has value and when it doesn't.
0: Yeah, so how do you go about starting, this or what's the method behind this kind of a study because you had 64 um, patients and you had three surgeons
1: i think it's a good lesson in itself in terms if you are going to do a phd is again you want to try and change the world and it's it's very like i think if i you know with students we supervise now it's about trying to pick off you know the low hanging fruit you know i tried to set this up with um people having Pre-injury, like pre-surgery data, and then at follow-ups at you know really regular time intervals, you know at every month all the way through to kind of six months, and then tracking them at twelve months and then two years. So um, to do that, uh, you know, especially when you start talking about functional tests as well, um, there's a there's a lot inv- involved in that. So um, and like you said, you have to make sure that you account for um, you know intersurgeon um, technique variability and a lot of different preferences in in that regard. So it it really was um, a bit of a mission in the beginning, and I'm glad that I did it. Where I had to sort of sit down, and you know, na- as you know, nailing down consultants and surgeons into the same place to sort of have a have a conversation is um is not that easy. So I really had to settle down um, in terms of the structure of the study and make sure that it was all well all well geared from the point because you can do hell of a lot of work on the back end of it and it can be useless just purely because You've introduced some sort of other variables inadvertently that you didn't mean to.
0: Yeah, it certainly shows the level of complexity that goes into organising and conducting a study like this. But whilst we're on the methods, and for my interest, you you compared a um, or you used a synthetic graft and an autograft in this study. Yeah. I can say, I've I've never come across anyone that's had a synthetic. It's normally always an autograft, a hamstring or a quad tendon. Can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the potential benefits or why you, you involved this? So again, at that time, um,
1: synthetic grafts were sort of um, reasonably popular within Australia because there was this premise, particularly at the elite level, of being able to um, get people back to sport really quite quickly. So it, um, it it did provide you know a good opportunity in the sense of um, at that time. There was lots of talk about donor site morbidity after after you've had an ACL. So as where well with that kind of graph, that is not a that is not a factor. Um, you're not necessarily relying on biological healing because it was supposed to be you know strong enough to tow a boat with straight away. So um, the the a lot of the progressions with that particular kind of operation were geared towards just functional recovery. Um, so so it actually did provide. Um, some nice segues into like just how recovery is derived because you didn't have things like biological recovery um you know donor site morbidity all these other things that sort of get get blamed for um a lot of the influences with recovery after an acl
0: yeah you can certainly see the logic behind that theory um i know you did a paper or you contributed to the paper that compared the two alongside this one i'm sure was there a difference in outcome using a synthetic or autograft I'm assuming not considering majority of, of, of reconstructions remain to be an autographed.
1: No. So the like when you look at the trajectories of all the different kind of aspects of it, they, they both went at basically the same, same period. So basically how they started very much dictated. So if they were in a really good state before the operation, they just went at this nice sort of linear improvement generally across the board. Um, the autographs sort of did the same thing. It, it was really about the... The level of function that they had beforehand probably dictated a lot of that, as opposed to you know one person had a um, an autograft, so they had donor site midi- morbidity, and theirs was going to be really different to someone that had a had a synthetic graft.
0: Yeah, I think that reflects today's standards, where there's so much emphasis on prehabilitation and building up strength and function before the surgery, as opposed to the the argument between which graft is better. Um, or has better outcomes uh, there's a lot more of a stronger Definitely. argument that the stronger you are before you go in the better you'll do
1: and and each of them each of the you know each of the donor sites has a subtle nuance in terms of how you manage the rehab you know like patella tendon then they're, they're going to be a bit more sensitive to kind of compressive load at the knee so just managing that hamstring obviously has you know deficit in terms of kind of knee you know torque knee flexion torque so it's um there's some subjects you subtlety to it for sure but um good programming means that you're basically kind of chasing all those all those aspects um anyway for mine so so for me donor site is is not a is not a big thing at all it's more you know some of the technicalities of tunnel placement and you know those sorts of things
0: yeah fantastic um so staying on the methodology then what Clinical outcomes? Did you use or clinical tests? Did you use to compare throughout this study and and the different time points that you used them?
1: So it was was very much um, like you know subjective subjective recovery. Um, There was activity levels rolled into it as well, Um, and a lot of the sort of commonly derived um, uh, like clinical tests, you know, joint effusion, range of motion, stability of the knee, like all the things that a, a physio would classically sort of look at in terms of you know how they would classify a, a a clinically stable knee you know and we actually did um instrumented laxity of all the knees as well so we used a kt1000 just a you know for instrumented sort of ap uh laxity of the knee and did that at all the staged periods um along the way as well so it was, it was actually sort of measured you know measured laxity of the knee
0: yeah so a lot more objective um rather than just doing a Lachman's and grading it if it's lax or not, it's, it's a lot more specific.
1: De- definitely, yeah, it was all, again, even clinical can be a subjective thing by nature, but it's, um, ours was probably as o- objective as it, as it can be. You know, there's a, the IKDC is a standardized scoring system for, for clinical assessment of the knee, and, and we use that as well.
0: Brilliant, yeah, and what, what were the findings then, mate? What were the results of this, and what can you, what can you draw from the study?
1: The, the The long and short of it was that you know we looked at um how all these tests compared and then followed them up over a two year period to see you know how that matched up to um you know return to sport outcomes afterwards as in what level of sport they were playing um as rated by a tegna and it didn't um hold up strongly as a as a you know correlator um really at all the the take homes for me were very much that it's it's you needed it as a um you need it as a, as a baseline. So if, if someone has a, you know, the average laxity of the knee was sort of around uh, 1.8 to 2 millimetres kind of difference. And if you look at the classic criteria for a, a graft failure, is somewhere between 3 to 5 millimetres of difference. So so the average knee, you know, had a, um, objectively had a had a stable knee and um, really I think beyond, so, so now with the pitch ready stuff, we still use a lot of those tests. And and what I'll say to the athlete is I'm not expecting anything to jump up and down here, but it's more about building a picture so that on the, on the back end of it, you can um, explain away, you know, people will throw out all sorts of different reasons as to why someone's going well or not going well. And, um, you know, even they'll talk about inability for the knee to tolerate bend and they'll say it's because I've got a stiff ankle and, you know, those sorts of things. So it's... Um, it's not that a knee wall for an ankle is a is a an amazing sort of return to sport test after an ACL, but it can help you to on the back end of it when you start look, going down the pointy end of um, movement preferences and some of these things as to being able to explain why someone does something in a in a particular way. Is it just purely because they don't have good range in the knee or they have an unstable knee or an unhappy knee, any of those sorts of things? So the real take home for me was that a lot of those things aren't rocket science um at the back end from a return of sport. But being able to um categorically say that they are not um not part of the problem is is really but you know is really important. Someone can have a functioning quite a good knee, but if the knee is unhappy and they've got a recurrent effusion, for example, then you know that's indicative that the knee joint itself is not um is not happy and and um you know the knee can present some time not too far down the track, you know, with having secondary um chondral issues or something like that just purely because the knee you know was probably under stress that it didn't really want to be
0: yeah I agree these are like fairly basic but they're the things that once we achieve them post-op they're the things we're trying to sustain and try and keep a steady state throughout the whole rehab as they progress their load and progress their complexity and intensity up to returning to sport and I really like the way that you phrased that they're not necessarily indicators to rule in that the player is ready, but we're trying to rule them out as a potential inhibitor for their return. Definitely. So, how did you define like successful outcomes and a successful return to sport? Was it based on just their perception, or was it quite objective?
1: It was no. It was it was like, it was based on a tegna. So it was. Um, literally you know what what level of sport were you playing beforehand and what level of sport are you are you playing now so if you're a national if you're a national elite um professional footballer beforehand you know what are you now are you a national elite professional footballer are you just playing club level or you know those sorts of things
0: yeah cool and what what was the return rate or what was the success rate in in this study
1: um so the cohort the the return to sport rate was around 82 percent i think from memory which with a reasonably high level um, compared to what you know, research at that time had people sort of somewhere around kind of sixty odd percent, um, you know, somewhere around sixty-seven percent, I think, from memory. And so part of the part of that for me was that at that time it was very time-based, and and this this whole paper and the whole research project was much more sort of objective. Like it's it's I still see it as being quite simple now compared to what I do sort of years later, but at that time, there was a lot more rigor than probably what was going on at the time. So I think part of the, um, you know, why people are hesitant to go back afterwards is because there's just that uncertainty and anything that you provide for them that helps give them some of that, that certainty um, definitely helps mitigate that that fear.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And I think speaking from hindsight now, it all seems fairly straightforward. What you're saying is is probably replicated in the standards nowadays that it's more functional based it's not time-based but back when this article was published it seems like you were going against a lot of the dogmatic um, approaches being largely time-based do you feel that the fact that you were more functional in your outcome measures reflects the higher percentage of successful outcomes compared to the research at, at that stage
1: I I definitely, yeah, it's speculation at the end of the day, but I definitely feel like that that doesn't you know, that that's definitely a big help and 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 definitely the, the rigor that we sort of try and apply with you know with the pitch ready stuff now goes to another level of get, again. And a lot of them will say that for them it helps give them confidence because um we've got a reasonable size um database now and We've got reasonable, you know, confidence in terms of levels that people achieve in in terms of normality, um, and ones that have gone past a certain level. The re-injury rate is, you know, is historically really, really low. So, so they take a level of confidence out of that that they, you know, that they really have done everything that science can help them with. That, you know, at that given sort of moment in moment in time, and and you know, they tend to take a take a fair bit away from that, even if it's just mental. Uh,
0: yeah, I agree, and just chatting about the rigour and the rigour of this study were there any limitations um that that you found or that if you could redo the study would you do anything differently
1: i think yeah i I think for that moment like the only way you could make it any um any better really is to just have you know more numbers means that the power of the study just gets more generalizable so i would say that's a but that can be a bit of a cop-out um you know because the the amount of time we had to spend sort of um Collecting data for, for that group was was huge. So, um, you know, I I think the only way we could have improved it is is just bigger numbers. But then, you know, logistics of of these studies come out. So, so a lot of the research that we're doing now, you know, like I said, is I want massive studies. I want you know a thousand. I want a thousand people in there. You know, that's probably the next for me. I'm just holding publishing some of the research that we're doing now, just because I want big big cohorts because that's going to help add some add some strength to the things that we're talking about.
0: Yeah. And I'm excited for, for those studies to come out. Um, but just to conclude this one, I guess a nice way to do it is if you were a junior student and you picked up, picked up this paper, you rehab and your first ACL, what would be the take home messages or the conclusions that you want that person to take from this paper?
1: I think it's it's very much that it's um a lot of the tests that we would use in that paper is about a minimum standard, so before you start getting too carried away with um you know the, the modern day with Instagram is that everyone wants to have big fancy drills and you know and um and I see a lot of that now where you get a you know um a, an angry grumpy knee that you know people are trying to do probably get a little bit too cute too too early um so Simple tests like this can probably just tell you that you, you might be just jumping the jumping the gun slightly. So although it doesn't um, doesn't bode up really well on a on a social media post as to someone having no you know not having a joint joint effusion, um, at the end of the day it can it can probably um, help save you having some issues sort of further down the track. So it's not it doesn't help you in terms of um, working out whether someone can go to sport, but it can definitely Help you um, get on a good path with the rehab.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great little summary, and I think keep the the key points are, are ones that will stand the test of time. So, really valuable insight. Um, but that kind of brings up the the end of this episode, and in part two, we're gonna we're gonna carry on with more of the functional testing. But for those listeners that maybe want to look into a bit more of the stuff that you're doing with Pitch Ready, where where can they keep up to date with you and find you on social media?
1: Uh, we've got a we've got a web Pitch Ready's got a website which is just www.pitch-ready.com and there's a research there's a research page that has all the the listed publications uh, on there that we've done to date.
0: Brilliant. And social media, you do do you do much
1: on social media or so, so, yeah, so I'm a little bit more old school in that regard, but yeah, we do have we do have an Instagram page that has, you know, um some of the people we're working with and uh and there's a Twitter Twitter feed, which is where um we've tried to keep that where we we try and um keep it much more sort of research-based sharing articles that we that, that we're reading ourselves. Um so if, if people are interested in kind of keeping up with that that's where where we keep that info.
0: Yeah, nice. And you did a you recently did a ACL masterclass with the Sports Map guys that people can find online. Can you can you give them a bit of a link or a direction towards that?
1: So yeah, we did a we did a we, I did a fairly comprehensive um, online masterclass for Sports Map um, which is available on their on their website. Um, and it, it does dive right down into like how i approach things from a rehab perspective return to sport a lot of those things yeah it's tried to keep it pretty um pretty practically derived so um yeah if if people are sort of interested in learning how we try and attack the rehab side of things then that's definitely definitely something i think is a is a pretty good resource
0: fantastic and that sums up today's episode with tim mcgrath in part two tim's going to be discussing his follow-up study that looks at functional performance tests and the correlation with return to sport outcomes. So please stay tuned for that one and thanks for listening. Today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard. The Nordboard has become the gold standard for assessing field based hamstring strength. By combining advanced sensors, real time data visualizations, and cloud analytics, The Nordboard helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor and train individuals' hamstring strength or imbalances. To learn more about the Nordboard, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com.